0: Front Page Pass brought to you by Word Journeys, the literary world's hottest new podcast. Fellow publishing industry expert and author, illustrator, designer, join together in bringing you the latest news, discussions, and literary-related entertainment for readers, writers, and educators alike. All right, so welcome to the Front Page Pass uh, with your hosts Bob Yelling and Lex Black. Um, we have quite a few things in store today. We're had interviewing two interesting guests, um, Claire Eisenthal and Tanya Brooking, and um, happy to announce that last week, if you guys have been keeping up with us, you know that last week we uh, aired our very first podcast, and we got a lot of great reviews on it from across the country and even the world, really. I mean, quite a bit. So, um, and we are now available also on all platforms. So, we have a lot in store for you guys. So, just stick with us, and we'll see what we can we, we can bring to the table. So,
1: yeah, and, and <laughs> um, it was it was a really good first show, and like you said, we had a lot of good response from mm-hmm. people. But we're, you know, we're you know, we're writers, we're creatives, and mm-hmm. we don't we don't sit and rest on our laurels very long. So we've actually so now we're going right into um, guest conversations. Mm-hmm. And of course, the novelists, Claire Eisenthal and Tanya Brookin yes. will be joining us later. And, um, you know, and I was I was just thinking about it, getting ready for this interview with them that. Uh, our administrative manager, at Word Journeys, mm-hmm. Aaron James, and I had the pleasure of interviewing Brian Scary from National Geographic mm-hmm. last week. He's a he's the senior producer and executive producer of the show Secrets of Whales, and it was really fun because we got we went off track right or off the script right away, and we asked really you know we asked questions about the, the intricacies of filming whales. For instance, this I never knew this, but you cannot inter, you cannot go down and and uh, and film whales um, underwater with scuba gear because the bubbles freak them out. Oh, so yeah. these guys managed to get these incredible shots on all these shows we've seen while they're snorkeling and while they're free diving, so holding their breath. Mm-hmm. So literally they get these great shots when they it's have impressive. maybe two minutes to work mm-hmm. with because they have to come up for air. Exactly. Um, but that was just one of the many things. And so I'm hoping that we can deliver something similar um, mm-hmm. with, with Claire and Tanya when we speak to them later today. And um, but first, we have a couple of things, and then we'll get right to our, our guests. Um, and I was thinking for since our since our podcast is for both readers and writers, I was thinking about a nice little uh, nice little crossover tip that we could offer. And one of the things I love to do um, when I'm writing novels is cross read, mm-hmm. yes. and and cross reading is really fun whether you're a reader or a writer. And what cross reading simply means is reading in um, Different genres at the same time. So, for instance, you might have a memoir, a poetry book, mm-hmm. uh, a thriller, um, you know, a mainstream novel, and and maybe some kind of nonfiction book, and you know, and then you read them all. You know, everything's bookmarked. Your bedside table exactly. stacked up yes. like this, right? We've all been there. Yeah, yes. and and um, you know, like for instance, <laughs> when I'm writing books, I never I never read in the genre I'm writing while I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I, I always do, and I'm not writing the book, but I don't want any bleed through to happen beca- between someone else's voice and my own. Um, but when I'm reading, you know, and I'm just reading, it's like, you know, free for all. And one of the greatest things that I, I learned about cross reading to, to enhance us as writers is that neuroscientists did studies on this many mm-hmm. years ago or several years ago, and, and they showed that if you cross read. Then your brain, your it activates synapses in your brain that don't mm-hmm. ordinarily work together, and they, they so they cross hatch as well. Mm-hmm. So cross reading, cross hatching the brain exactly. synapses, and so what you'll see is in in for you know when we read books and we read books and we see writers that come up with these amazing similes and metaphors that you're just going how did how did that writer connect those mm-hmm. two things? It just seems so different. Well, one of the reasons is that they cross read. And through cross reading, your brain just naturally forms associations and connections between things that aren't otherwise related. Yeah, that they it's, normally
0: wouldn't. Mm-hmm. It's
1: really cool. So whether reading or writing, it's always fun to read three, four, five books at the same time. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, you know, once you get once you get fully immersed in one of them, you're gonna just take off and finish it. Mm-hmm. But from a writing standpoint, cross reading mm-hmm. is is just such a great tool to have in the in the belt. Um and I, I know when I cross-read and then I start, I start writing, it just comes out of anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you're just fully immersed in a creative process. And so I just wanted to share that quick mm-hmm. tip today on, um, on cross-reading. And, uh, you know, and I mean, I mean, you probably have done it with the books you've written, too, where you have just re- read in different genres.
0: Yes, I have multiple times um, whenever I've been writing on medieval fantasy, which tends to be my go to. Um, I have often read uh, mystery. Uh, I do like reading horror as well. And I feel like that really helps because since I'm intrigued by those genres also, um, I, I'm able to kind of uh, uh, incorporate Certain aspects that I have from that, because any book you read, obviously, puts you in a different mindset. So you're kind of you're in that mindset of the book you're reading, but then you, you can take it into what you're writing as yeah, well. So yeah. it's it's pretty
1: neat. Yeah. Yeah, and I know when I was writing Voices, uh, my music novel, mm-hmm. I it was really hard not to read music books because I love reading about musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did is I wrote I read uh, both fiction and nonfiction books about um, visual artists mm-hmm. because what are musicians but you know artists with musical notes exactly and um you know and then plus a lot of poetry because i was writing a lot of lyrics in in the voices oh, yeah, of my characters yeah sure because i mean poetry and lyrics are very very similar they are um one <laughs> All and, the same you way. know i mean iambic pentameter in poetry is <clears throat> a four four beat in <clears throat> music it's the same exact rhythm so um yeah it's, so cross reading is just a great it's a great uh technique and a great tool and it, it really is. really helps with um with you and your writing practice <clears throat> So, um, since we have an abbreviated front part of the show today, since yes. we can't wait to talk to our guests, um, I I just so I wanted to just do our regular thing of uh, about telling everybody about the New York Times bestseller list. And what we do in every show is um, is the top five fiction, the top five nonfiction, and the and these bestseller lists that we read are a combined print and ebook sales. So it's not just one or the other; it's both put together. So in fiction. We have kind of a rare thing, Um, the the one and two spots in the New York Times top five Mm -hmm. are both by the same author, uh, Kristen Hanna. Her book, The Four Winds, has went number one this week, and it's been on the charts for four weeks. And then Firefly Lane, Mm -hmm. her other book, has been on for six weeks, and that's number two. Number three is The Kaiser's Web by Steve Barry, which is the 16th book in the Cotton Malone series. Um, number four is A Court of Silver Flames by Sarah J. Moss. And that's her fifth book in the Court of Thorns and Roses series. So two series having a lot of play here. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, number five on the list is The Duke and I by Julia Quinn.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How about nonfiction?
0: The, yep. And for the nonfiction, we have number one is How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates, which has been on there for two weeks. Um, number two is Think Again by Adam Grant, which has been on there for four weeks. Uh, three is Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey, which has been on there for 19 weeks. Um, cast by Isabel Wilkerson, uh, 30 weeks. And then Walk in My Combat Boots is number five by James Patterson. And uh, they're all pretty intriguing reads. They really are. So,
1: Right. Yeah. Well, so without further ado, we've been building them up long enough. Um, so our, our guest today, it's it's really a pleasure because um, I've had the pleasure to know both mm-hmm. of these authors and one of them is from my hometown of Carlsbad, mm-hmm. California, and that is uh, that is novelist Tanya Brooking, who wrote um, Lovely Rita, mm-hmm. and which is her first novel. And then we also have um, Claire Eisenthal, mm-hmm. who's from Carmel, Indiana, mm-hmm. and so they're both they're both joining us from Tanya from Carlsbad and Claire from Carmel. So um, Tanya and Claire, welcome to the show.
2: All right. So I'm going to go ahead and kick it off with. Um my first, the two pages that I selected uh, to read to this lovely group. And before I do, I just wanna um, make sure that I let the audience know that um, there is a trigger warning um, with heavy gun violence and trauma. So um, uh, just a forewarning on that. Um, Okay. The shots weren't stopping. They were gaining speed. A blur of bodies enclosed them, trapping them into a herd of stalked wildebeest. Nate's hand was all that grounded Flynn to this earth. Two young boys stood in the center of the stampede's path, separated from their parents in the madness. Wearing matching green line t-shirts, they clutched each other, sobbing, faces swollen. Nate let go of her, swooping down to pick up the children. Stumbling, she reached for him. Nate, don't, don't let go. The frantic crowd, a wild and raging river, ripped them apart. Flynn, stay right behind me. The distance between them grew. The machine guns tightly packed bursts unloaded behind them. Her eyes locked onto Nate's. His pupils dilated, expanding into large pool, black pools, reflecting her terror. Neck straining, Flynn opened her mouth to scream. Her throat constricted, unable to produce sound. Arms clasped around the boys, Nate struggled toward the only possible escape. Flynn! Slipping further away, she tried to stay close unable to extract herself from the flow of tangled limbs. Nate, a blast masked her voice. Agony-filled screams collided with ringing ammunition fire. Endless rounds drummed against her ears, pounding them with mounting pressure. Diving sideways, she scrambled behind an abandoned concession stand. Chest heaving, the world spun like it was propelled from orbit. Involuntary tears streamed down her face, catching on her lips. Bitter saltiness mingled with acidic bile rising in her throat. A popcorn machine shattered on the counter of her concession stand bunker. Glass shards cascaded over her shoulders, slicing her arms. A crisscross pattern of blood rose to the surface. She flattened her back against the counter, breath caught within clenched jaws. A thick, putrid cloud burned her nostrils, searing her eyes. Head pressed between her knees, her fingers fastened over her neck. It's over. I'll never live through this. Just let it end quickly. Several seconds passed before Flynn realized the gunfire had stopped. Glancing up from her lap, her heart thudded into her stomach. A pair of heavy black boots stood before her. Hands numb, her mind struggled to grasp its new reality. Her gaze crept upward over the black belted cargo pants and bulletproof vest to the crimson mask. Slowly, he raised his gun to her head. I'm gonna die, she thought. The towering figure studied her, unreadable beneath his costumed facade. Staring into the endless barrel, one last whisper fell from her lips. Goodbye. Pain ripped through her skull. Everything went black.
0: That wow. is powerful and very suspenseful, I have to say. <laughs>
1: and that, that's a reading from Claire <laughs> Eisenthal's new book, The yes. Rising Order. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, Claire, welcome, welcome to Front Page Pass. Thanks and um thanks me. and thank you We're for glad coming. to have you yeah so. <laughs> so first of all um the rising order is quite a book i mean first it it really parallels a, a big troubling thing that's going on in this country could you could you start by elaborating on that
2: yeah i think i think that scene that i just read is a good example of that um and you know it, it's so interesting because um it it obviously, as you might have picked up on, it takes place at a concert. And so Mm. I I wrote this scene um, back well before um, the Ariana Grande concert um, terrorist attack, which occurred in Manchester in England um, back in 2017. And Tanya is my witness for that. She read it. um, She read it well in advance. So I'll never forget um, when that concert um, attack happened, because Mm -hmm it was so similar to this scene. Um, and a lot, of, the, it, a lot of, of what I wrote is actually reminiscent of my own experience, um, of course, not being there, but back in 2011, I was actually at the, um, the Sugarland Concert at the Indianapolis State Fair. And I'm not sure if you remember, but there was um, really horrible weather and the stage at the Sugarland Concert collapsed, mm. killing, I think it was eight people. And so I was there, um, and so a lot of um, a lot of those memories are very much from that, um, you know, from the chaos, from the stampeding people, from the panic. Um, so I kind of channeled that, as well as, um, you know, just like some of those indelible moments from from that memory of my own. So yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, as we as we know, our world is, um, has become a, a, an increasingly um, scary place to live and um you know even just yesterday with um Mm. Robert Aaron Long killing I think eight what what was it um he well he shot a dozen Asian Americans killing eight so it's just um I don't want to say it's becoming normalized but it's just sad to see what's Mm. happened even in just me writing that scene and where we are now in our country.
1: And and while Claire is talking, joining us on the podcast is our is our her her sister in writing. I like to think uh, <laughs> yeah. Tanya Brooking, who's 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 joining us from California. And, yes. <laughs> and so we're going to be talking to both of them together, mm-hmm. and then also talking to each of them separately exactly. a, as the show goes on. Mm-hmm. So Claire, um, I mean, the Rising Order is a really striking story because you not only have a memorable protagonist, but you have a memorable antagonist. Could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, their protagonist and your antagonist, but also what what makes what makes an antagonist compelling reading?
0: Oh,
2: gosh, that's mm-hmm. such a good
0: question. Yeah, I was gonna ask something, something similar to that, you know, just kind of detail by fleshing out the antagonist as, as important as the protagonist, mm-hmm. really.
2: Um, oh yeah. yeah oh definitely mm-hmm. um and you know it's so it's so funny um because tanya will so tanya is also um tanya and i what bob means by that is we're um we've been in a writer's group for like oh, mm-hmm. probably about four years now tanya so yeah. tanya's really seen the evolution of this book and the story and these characters um which is really special i think that's a special relationship with that mm-hmm. but um to that point and that question you know um wolf who is the antagonist actually came a lot easier to me Mm. as tanya knows um and people they didn't connect with him more but they were drawn in by him i think Mm. and by his his voice um i don't know if that's because he's so different than who i am Mm. if it's because during the creative process it was kind of easier for me to channel that darkness especially given um so much of my anxieties about the world that we lived in were kind yes. of um, emulated through him. Um, but with with Flynn, it was harder. And I think it was because she was mm-hmm. more of a reflection of, um, you know, a woman similar in age to myself, mm-hmm. um, who was also very different, but also similar to me. So um, Wolf was easier for me to write, surprisingly. And I did a lot of research um, as well uh, by working with people who had since been a part of um, domestic terrorist organizations as well, kind of vetting his character to make sure it was an accurate portrayal, Mm -hmm. um, as well as the organization was accurate of like what the organization that I created was, Mm -hmm. so. Motives and et cetera, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah. Before we knew knew what Proud Boys were. Before we knew what
2: Proud Boys were, before domestic terrorism was really something that was discussed in the media like it is today, I had actually worked, and the person who I interviewed was Christian Piccolini, who he's written his own book um, that's been published, and he was very much a part of um, a neo-Nazi skinhead organization that he has since left, and he's appeared on 60 Minutes, and he's definitely um, been in the news quite often because he formed a nonprofit organization, which is focused on extracting extremists from their organizations and re them back into society. And so he was a really critical... Um, you know, person for me, he was a sounding board um, in which I was able to kind of say like, is this, I'd actually written the story and then I I balanced a lot of what Wolf's experience was off of him. Okay. And so was able to kind of validate and verify that like, this is correct. um, And the relationship between him and Flynn as it unfolds, that that would be realistic. <clears throat> yeah,
0: that really helps with authenticity too. Whenever you're yeah, creating yeah. an
2: antagonist, so that's that's excellent.
0: Um, yeah. I and
1: I have one more question, and I know Alexa's got a bunch for you. Um, so the two of you have been in a writing group together for four years. Um, and Tanya, when you first when you first started uh, seeing Claire's work, getting to know her, um, looking at her writing and stuff, what struck you um, about her writing? And secondly. Um, how do you two collaborate when you're working on manuscripts? Because I know you pass, I know you pass chapters back and forth and so forth. But could you tell us a little bit about your collaboration process? And also, again, Tanya, what what struck you about Claire's writing when you first saw it? <clears throat>
0: Well,
2: it make really it good, Tanya, make it
3: <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> it was really partly her as a person. Um, we met at San Diego Writers Conference and um, we just happened to be sitting together in the same uh, I, well workshop, I guess. I can't remember ex- even who it was. And um, she had already a fully fleshed out manuscript and she was like 27 and, or, or so, right? yeah And I was still, gosh, I might have had, I don't know, 150 pages written, um, 100 of which are no longer mm-hmm. in my manuscript at all. And <laughs> so I just, I loved her, um, you know, her tenacity, and she was so driven to get her story published and told, really, more importantly, told. It, and like she said, back then, um, domestic terrorism wasn't on, like they didn't even say the words on the news or politics or no, whatever. No. Um, so then when I read the story, which has drastically changed since mm-hmm. then,
0: including
3: mm-hmm. her protagonist who went through a complete overhaul.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, oh,
3: okay. Yeah, her protagonist, Flynn, was a very different um, character before. Mm-hmm. And when she changed that character, she became so much more interesting and fully fleshed out and, and complicated than, Mm -hmm. and just realistic than um, the first round. But um, as far as working together as a writer's group, so we, it's very unusual, I think, for you to have a writer's group full of Writers that all write in such different genres, like I'm women's fiction, she's a thriller, our other writing partner writes sci-fi of all things. Mm-hmm. And um, and he's like a 70 year old man mm-hmm. in, in the woods in Wisconsin. Oh, wow. <laughs> we are all-
1: <laughs> spread out.
3: Also, yeah, we're really spread out. Well, thank goodness for the writers conference because um, I met him there and he and I had actually started working together before I brought Clarion. I invited Claire to join us and I she had always I it was like three or four months after the conference, right, Claire?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. At least. Maybe like, yeah, probably rather than then.
3: And I just I she stuck with me. Her like a good character, she stuck <laughs> with me. And um, so when I invited her in, our our group dynamic improved so much because I think what we lend to each other, yes, we do trade chapters back and forth and we do comments and then we meet. And go over um, the comments that we've made for each other um we all have our own ways of going forward after that i'm very Mm -hmm. stubborn about certain things but i'm super open about every like i'll just hang on to one thing because i don't know how to fix it and i think that i what i have is the only way to do it until claire and bill say well what about this what about that and until somebody turns a light on for me I, i i just stay i'm like a single-minded about it mm-hmm. so the, i don't know how people do it without a writer's group i honestly don't mm-hmm. um, so we lend each other i think in i think if i were to say what our strengths were that we share with each other um, claire's obviously her action and tension are super super powerful um, she did create a villain who was uh complicated mm-hmm. who had a, a really um intriguing backstory that she uh, reveals over time through the book. Um, and so the action intention, and, and then a really good villain. And then Bill, our other partner, um, he is so incredibly good at choreography and dialogue. Um, things that, these, these are things that I've learned from them that have strengthened mm-hmm. my writing so much. And I guess if um, I had a strength, um, I don't know, it's very hard to talk about myself. <laughs> So I'm sure I'm sure Claire could
1: I I don't know. Well, we'll talk about you. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> I know. Ask me a question, and I will always put it back on you.
1: <laughs> so, uh, uh, Claire, could you give mm-hmm. us kind of a quick overview of the Rising Order, and also I know that um, this is the first book, and what is being planned out as a trilogy. So, can you just take us through the first book? A little bit more, and then just kind of hint at what happens next.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, in a nutshell, The Rising Order is um, a, a story like we've talked about about domestic terrorism and the rise of domestic terrorism. Um, hence the name. And it's about um, a young woman who um, is fairly lost in in what she wants to do, but she works for um, a very large computing company and she's taken hostage during a terrorist attack. Um, and uh, that organization who takes her hostage uses her to infiltrate um, her computing company. So I'll kind of leave it at that, um, but, but uh, it is intended to be a series. And mm-hmm. um, the next installment um, is, is um, very different in feel because it's a little bit more apocalyptic. Um, it, it reflects kind of like the worst case scenario mm-hmm. Um, about essentially how ill-prepared our country mm-hmm. is um, for cyber warfare and for, um, for cyber attacks, especially by agents who um, really have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been an interesting study um, you know, and um, different scenarios that of course I've been playing out in my head as the, the series all evolve, has evolved. Um, but yeah, it's it um, interesting.
0: Yeah. So the sequel, yeah. Will essentially, yeah, the sequel will essentially be kind of a portrayal of if the domestic terrorists have their way, so to speak. That's
2: yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, and yeah. we kind of see yeah. that evolution okay. throughout the first book, mm-hmm. as well as we learn more about the organization, why they are the way they are, their motives, exactly. their manifesto, what they mm-hmm. what they want to achieve. Um, and then mm-hmm. the second book is what happens when they achieve it. So, um, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's intense, kind of the intense, yeah. Oh, and
3: again, definitely. the news—the news follows what Claire writes. So be very careful about what you write, Claire. I know. <laughs> yes. <seriously. laughs>
2: I know. It's like I wrote about insurrection before insurrection was a thing on January sixth. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah,
1: you, you, you—you uh, you forecasted in a way in your in your manuscript. Uh, yeah. um, so, um, and then you also another thing about your background too is you do work for a large um, company in the in the industry so Mm -hmm. um how did so how does your how does your work experience how did that bleed into um the book or did it
2: it definitely bled into the book um you know i i work as in um, i work in sales as an account executive at google and so um seeing the power that these large tech companies have um especially in terms of um the data that they have at their disposal you can see how how um vulnerable, it makes, um, the general population in terms of how much now we rely on technology, Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the ability for things like zero day viruses to take Mm -hmm. advantage of the vulnerabilities that are often in the systems, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how even those vulnerabilities can be capitalized on by our, our own American government, um, which has been something really interesting to learn about and read about in the research that I did, um, when coming up, you know, with some of the plot lines of the book. Um, so you just have access to a lot of information and a lot of players being in the tech industry and, um, you know, a lot of worst case scenarios, just (laughs) a worst case scenario kind of gal, gal clearly. And that kind of (laughs) my (laughs) work. So, um, yeah. Hopefully that answers your question.
1: Yeah, it did. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> um Yeah, and then and then I should just say that um both both uh, the Rising Order and Lovely Rita Tanya's book are currently being marketed in the publishing world so there there's several editors in New York looking at each of their manuscripts mm-hmm. right now so it's kind of it's kind of been an extended pins and needles time for both yeah, of them. Yeah, true. <laughs>
0: um
1: but um to that yeah. point uh, to that point a quick question for both of you. Um, a lot of writers, new writers, uh, or young writers think that really you write your first draft, you rewrite it, you're done. Could you each, could you each talk about how, how, what effort it took to get your manuscripts to the point at which they went out to publishers? Oh
2: my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Tanya, you want to go first? <laughs> Handed <laughs> it to We've you. We've both come. So, I mean, thinking about the past few years and like where we were and where we are now, it's pretty remarkable
3: yeah we both rewrote our entire manuscripts uh, yeah uh, 100 from beginning to end and and then rewrote them again Mm
1: -hmm. and then
3: revised 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 and then in preparation for this um meeting today we both had to open up our our manuscripts which we have been pretty good about not doing Mm -hmm. right (laughs) that is and as, uh, as I looked for a couple of pages to read, every two pages I read, I had to start wordsmithing. So yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, it's never done. Right. I, right. I went I, I was on a um, webinar with Lily King, the author of Writers and Lovers. And she said um, when she puts it, when it's when it starts being quiet, when it's you know, when the, the story stops talking to you then you're done. And I'm like, when does that ever happen? <laughs> <the> story stop? <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and Claire writing a sequel, she's, she has no choice but to mm-hmm. reference her that door open. first manuscript. And mine is, the, my current work in progress is a spinoff of lovely Rita. So I am still also in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very, it's, it's very, it's, it's very long.
2: Yeah. Way longer than anticipated. <laughs> it's, um, it's such a, like I think when you try to establish a, an end goal with the story and the writing is when, I, I just don't think that's possible anymore. Um, or, or you'll constantly be disappointed or exasperated or impatient hmm. um, because you just, to Tanya's point, you don't ever quite get there. Um, especially with the constant revisions and like Tanya said when when we were both kind of looking through our manuscripts trying to figure out what to read like I didn't even want to do it I was like I can't even I can't even bring myself to open up this manuscript again right now Um, Mm -hmm. now it was really fun it was really fun to kind of go through and try Mm -hmm. to find you know a great scene to read um, in which sometimes you're able to fall in love with your writing all over again. Sometimes you just, it's Very so true. cringeworthy, <laughs> love, hate relationship. Um, but well, we it's are reading one thing to critic. read
3: it to yourself. It's another thing to go, okay, I got to read this out loud.
2: I know it's That's such a true. different exercise, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's important that this is when it's important to have another partner like Tanya, where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you being your own worst critic, like it's good to sometimes have somebody else who can kind of talk you off the ledge, mm-hmm. um, where you're like this is crap
3: (laughs) when you're stuck in one scene for a month and you're like what why is this one taking a month when another one could take two days Mm -hmm. right
1: yeah yeah Yeah.
3: which you know Bob, you've written enough books so you know yeah
1: yeah I, i know it's i know it's voices um i well i rewrote it i rewrote it twice and then i got into a time thing where when i after my first rewrite um I had a political sub thread going on in there that had to come out because Mm -hmm. i had put the book away and so i had to redo that whole thing but but yeah it always takes it it just and it never ends you know like you like you've both said it just the voice just Mm -hmm. doesn't want to shut off but sometimes it just you just have to hit send and then you've had the same experience with your novel
0: i have yes yeah Yeah. pretty much so i mean like like she said it's kind of a love-hate relationship by the time you get finished with it which you never really do get finished and even honestly, after you get it published, I mean, I've heard of, you know, pretty prominent authors that say they still want to go back and they wish okay. they could go back and, uh, you know, rewrite the thing. So,
1: well, I know. You know I, but, oh, yeah, because um, I remember um, when I in, in New York about 15 years ago or so, mm-hmm. I, I went to a Joyce Carol Oates signing. And I was talking to her uh-huh. and she's, you know, she's one of the most prolific authors yes. of the last century. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. she um and she was redoing her entire first first collection of short stories that she'd originally published mm-hmm. in 1964. So here it is 40 years later and she's redoing them because they didn't sound right to her. You know? Exactly. Yeah, but, but but then again you think about it she's a much better writer than she was 40 yeah. years ago she's 40 years older so a lot more life experience mm-hmm. yeah.
0: yeah experience comes into play yeah. as well because yeah. i wrote a World war ii non-fiction that i'm now currently you know revamping totally and it was something that i wrote seven or eight years ago and now you know reading it now it's like oh gosh what was i what was i doing <laughs> then <laughs> but um yeah so you know your writing evolves as you evolve put it that way
1: what do you love yeah. most about writing claire
2: oh gosh Um, you know, I just think it's such an outlet. Mm -hmm. I just think it's, it's such an important part of myself and who I am. And, um, I genuinely believe in my heart of hearts that this is my calling. This is what I'm meant to do. Um, and, you know, I was speaking to another published author the other day and kind of asking her, um, you know, Bob, as you said, being on submission right now and having your manuscript on the Mm -hmm. desk of editors, it's just like a it's been really tough on me um, because it's the more time passes, the more you kind of begin to doubt yourself and your work. And I was talking to to her about it um, given she'd gone through, gone through something like that. And I was like, you know, writing, you know, my second book for, you know, of a series. Hmm. I don't even know if the first one will, will sell. Like I'm kind of paralyzed by that. And she was like, This is where you have to ask yourself and your heart of hearts, like, is this the story you're supposed to tell? Mm -hmm. Because that's the only thing that will really like stick with you, especially because all of these external factors in the publishing industry are so Mm -hmm. far out of your control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's true of this story for me. I think without a doubt, this is something that I have to tell. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just getting lost in that flow of writing is like the best there's nothing better than that. Um, so I, I would say I would say that's it for me. That's my favorite part um, is when you're just lost in the story and you're lost in the characters mm-hmm. and they see you constantly and you realize how they're a part of you, you're a part of them, um, mm-hmm. you know, and you're just, you can create this world with them at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for any writer out there, it's best to,
0: um, you know, to just not let, let yourself get discouraged and to really reflect on those moments that you're talking about when you can totally get lost in your manuscript and lost in those characters. It's good to, you know, just kind of get to center yourself and really reflect on that, why you started writing in the first place and not not let that whole process of getting a book published uh, discourage you. Because when you do get it published, it's, you know, in retrospect, you look back and you think it was all worth it, you know, so.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. All part it of the journey. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yep. <laughs> so um, on that on that note, we're gonna switch from um, we're gonna switch from gritty a gritty thriller with mm-hmm. domestic tourism undertones. Yep. We're gonna go to the beach now. <laughs> yeah. Going on a little so, vacation. And so. <laughs> and, and, and Tanya's joining us from Carlsbad, California, which of course is my hometown. Mm-hmm. And uh, and um, anyway, so so Tanya, give us a, a quick overview of Lovely Rita and why you decided to write the book. Mm-hmm.
3: It's so hard. I'm so bad at an elevator pitch. I almost asked Claire to. What the book is about as well as I do.
1: Um,
3: so the story kind of um, sprouted from a short story that I had written. I I went into a creative writing class, and after my mom died, I just wanted I don't I wanted to get back to. i had always been a writer, but I wanted to get back into it. I hadn't been writing for a long time, and. Um, so I wrote this short story that became one of the chapters, um, in lovely Rita. I had no idea what it was going to be about, but once I wrote the short story, it just kind of stuck with me and stuck with me for years, like six years. And I, and then all of a sudden it just started to grow legs. And, um, so I, I started writing backstory. I didn't realize it was backstory, but, uh, and, and I started writing poems and lyrics and things like that. And then all just kind of coalesced into this, into this full, full-fledged no- novel.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. You mentioned um, writing lyrics and stuff, because I was going to ask, um, I was going to ask you to kind of discuss you having to tap into any songwriting abilities. Cause I know that the main character does delve into that quite often. So um, yeah. I don't know if you had a musical background or if it was something you had to work on or if the lyrics came first, you know, prior to the, the, book itself or um no um I
3: okay so I have no musical abilities mm-hmm. whatsoever I took piano as a child like most children yes. I have, I'm completely tone deaf anybody that's heard me sing knows that they would never want to do that again <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I've always written um poetry so mm-hmm. that's not really poetic I guess is what I, I don't know how else to say it because it's not like rhyming. It doesn't it's I guess freeform is what they call it. Okay, um, yeah, exactly. Free
1: verse. I didn't free know that. Yeah.
3: yeah. Free verse. Thank you. Interesting. Um so uh the, the songs that Rita writes um in during the writing of the novel, mm-hmm. the songs that she writes are really only bits and pieces of of mm-hmm. verse, you know, a verse here, uh a rhyme there she kind of thinks in terms of rhyming yes mm-hmm. and when she's pissed off or hurt uh she goes to that place to uh yes. just it, it's like it's almost like a meditation for her mm-hmm. um, and anybody that's meditated to music will totally that'll jive okay. with them. um and then um I did write her song of course that is the the song at the um I don't want to give anything away but (laughs) there's a song that is the central
1: song yes yes
3: there you go uh it is it's it's written I haven't written music to it I don't know how to do that um but she's a lyricist anyway so uh and she doesn't have any musical background either so I guess
0: uh (laughs) that that makes sense
3: yeah she's just she's just a natural that's what she hmm. you know, that's her go-to
1: yeah that's that's interesting how you were able to just pull out bits and pieces of lyrics to bits and pieces of songs mm-hmm. in her character and pull that off because i know with voices i i had to do it the hard way i ended up writing 30 songs in each of my two protagonists voices wow. 60 songs and then and then pulling 10 or 12 that ended up being in the book, because I just couldn't do that like you did it. You did it the easy or not the easy way, but you did it the really direct way where yeah. you're able to grab it right in the moment. Um, and I, I know my experience was a little tougher than that. Um, but well, um, if,
3: you've read, if you've read Daisy Jones and the Six, yeah. which, uh, which came out long after I wrote this story, yeah. obviously, but she... Um, Taylor Jenkins Reid, the author, she obviously wrote all those songs, and then at the back of the book, she's got all the songs printed, so you can because you don't get to hear them while you're reading the book. You don't even get to see them in their in their entirety in the book, just little snippets. And um, it, the feel of each song is so integral to the story,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and um, and and so is Rita's um, featured song. That's an so, right. interesting
0: approach.
1: Right yeah. so so a question for both of you. Um, so you write in such totally different genres di- your, your styles are much different. Um, when you're when you're looking at each other's writing and and you know and just so what what do you what do you two have what do you feel you have in common as writers and what are you able to point out in the others writing that works so well for you as a collaborative team.
0: Hmm.
2: Go ahead Claire. Um, I mean, it's so funny because, you know, when Tanya, I feel like we know each other's works so well. Now we know each other's voices. We know each other's weaknesses, our strengths. Um, so, um, I, Tanya, I take probably like 90, 8% of your recommendations whenever I send you a chapter and you send me back comments and revisions, I want to say. Um, Maybe it's a little bit more, sometimes it's 100%. But I just really trust Tanya. Um, I trust that she she always honors my voice and honors the story. And so her suggestions are really just ways to make it stronger and to bring forward um, what might not be on the page. Um, so I think we're good at identifying that for each other because there really comes to be a point in time when you can't really notice that about your own work anymore. No. Um, and so I think we're really good about pointing that out. Um, Tanya, I'd love to get your take on this, but I would say, no, she would say about me that I'm very, very good with structure for her. And yes. one area where, I mean, she's so great about, um, you know, uh, about description and then dialogue. Like she has been so critical in helping me to the character's voice for mm-hmm. dialogue you know and i know that everyone says like oh your first dialogue is always like your first draft especially when you get it down on the page but she kind of helps like bring that character to life mm-hmm. by making sure the dialogue matches that that voice of the character, character right yeah mm-hmm. so the Tanya, first, i don't the know what, what you'd say really yes. it's,
0: mm-hmm. the, it's mm-hmm.
3: so important um and and I'll, i'm in another writer's group with all women's fiction and it's so Important to honor the other author's voice and to, you, you know, everything that we suggest for each other are just that suggestions. Mm-hmm. And, but Claire and I have worked together so long that I, I too also take 98 to 100% of her suggestions. Um, I think structure wise, especially because I am um, th- this novel writing thing is such a huge beast. Yeah. And I had no idea because all I had ever written was, you know, little short stories and poems. I'm like, oh, how hard. Yeah, that's quite I a run? jump. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs>
3: yeah. um, so she's really helped me move things around um, within a scene and also just overall, not the whole manuscript. Um, sometimes things just needed to be moved around to make more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I also I she mentioned about writing dialogue as a lot of people do that as their first draft, just write all dialogue to get it out. And I don't do that. And I end up with a lot of narrative that can be changed to dialogue. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I don't oh, know. That's interesting. It. Yeah. Um, and that is where a lot of my extra work comes in in the revisions is, um, is finding those, the, the right points to turn into dialogue. Mm-hmm. Because like Claire said, it's so, you know, it's so hard to see in your own work. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and and one another question I have for you about lovely Rita. Um, One of the things that was really captivating and striking to me about the book when I when I read it is um, it's set in Southern California. It's teenage girl for the most part that then grows up. Um, I won't give I won't give away the end. But yeah, um, but and so, so it's Southern California, teenage girl, 1970s. Now I was a teenage boy in Southern California in the 1970s, and it was party time, fun time. I mean, every every great feeling, positive vibe you could have. That's how it was. I mean, it was awesome. But your book isn't that way. It's really no. interesting how it's it's kind of it's gritty and it's seri- very serious mm-hmm. in places, and it's a tough book. Could you? Could, and it's kind of like the anti beach read. Beach read. Um, <laughs> and you, because you know, because I know when you were pitching publishers, initial initial response was, yeah, we're looking for beach read, Southern California. We're really looking for Southern California, um, and then you know, but it's not quite that. Could you describe the tone of the book a little mm-hmm. bit?
3: I think they're surprised when they when they get this story, when they're looking for a Southern California quote, yeah. unquote, because yeah, it's set at the beach um, and it is the anti-beach, beach read, <laughs> but it is dark. Um, I think it's the darkness is juxtaposed with the beauty of this place, interesting, um, interesting. which I really tried. I, well, I didn't really try to bring it forward. It just came forward, to be honest. Um, <laughs> This is, this is where I live and when my inspiration is the beach. So uh, even when I would get a block of writing, a writing block, I would take my notebook across the street and go to the beach and walk on the sand. And I mean, everything is right there. Uh, everything that's there that I saw, pretty much everything landed in the book mm-hmm. because um, it, you know, one thing doesn't change about the, And that's the beach, whether it's the seventies or today, except right. for the, falling and (laughs) that kind (laughs) of stuff yeah Yeah. sand that we used to have so much of but overall um you know the the smell the the sounds the Mm -hmm. the things that you see are are all uh, the feel on your skin all of that is still very much the same and it was easy and as far as writing goes nothing's easy in writing but as far as comparative to a lot of other parts the hard stuff that was easy yeah Hmm the hard stuff's hard. There's no question.
2: Getting you into that the- so well, Tanya, you just, but you know, no a- I didn't at first. <laughs> it, it, it was you- always there though. It was always there. It, it's uh, here. To, like, it's wheel here. it back in almost because yeah. it was sometimes. so sometimes the sense of place was so powerful. Sometimes it kind of took over the story a little bit. Yeah. And
3: the, well, and the dark things I thought I needed so much more dark, there's actually a lot of stuff that dark stuff that happened in the initial draft that's not there anymore. Oh, wow. And partly that was Bill, our other, um, our other writing partner kept saying "When's she's going to have a happy ending, right? Like, when does anything good happen to this girl? I'm like, this isn't that kind of story, Bill. And then finally, (laughs) finally it rang true to me. I'm like, oh, well, that happened already. And this is just a worse version of that. Maybe she needs maybe she needs a little triumph at this point Mm -hmm. and it it really i think that helped the ebb and flow of Mm -hmm. the story um for a reader because i didn't realize how dark it had gotten Mm -hmm. because again you don't see what's on the page you just hear what's in your head most of the time
0: yeah that's interesting i was going to ask you if this was um kind of more to you a redemptive tale i mean obviously it's about the the main characters you know harrowing journey and whatnot but if it was more of a, a a redemptive tale like i said um you know, yeah, I, yeah. it, it mm. was, a tried uh, pretty much a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Um, and I want
0: to go that route. So I
3: like it so much better. And <laughs> it makes me so happy. I cried at the end. I still cry at the end of everything. Yeah. Um, because I, it was unexpected. It's unexpected to me, which I guess is really that when you talk about what's the most joy in writing, I think that is what it is for me is mm-hmm. the surprises that come that I don't plan that the characters tell me or my writing partners tell me, but mm-hmm. the characters tell me this is the direction we're going. And sometimes they lead me to a dead end, to be honest. And mm-hmm. I have to, you know, reel back and go, okay, well, where did we get off track? Um, but, Ooh, that's my favorite thing is be surprised by the characters for sure.
1: So that, that leads to a follow-up for each of you. What was the most, what was the uh, most surprising thing that came to you when you're writing that ended up in the book? So, so what, what is in the book that you wrote that you never had any idea you would write and it just came to you in the middle of working on the book, each of you?
3: Well, I think for me, it was the fir- the first and last chapters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. It changed wow. everything about my book. I had, I did not have that first and last chapter. I didn't have, because I didn't have the mm. redemption um, component um, and it was just kind of a downward spiral the whole time. I didn't have the bookends to prop it up. And when I, once I got those, I went back in and changed so much in the middle to put her on that path um
0: okay
3: yeah and that it sounds like a lot of work and i guess it was but when i look back i guess it's kind of like having a baby Uh, you know now i got the great baby i don't really think so much about how hard it was pushing it out
1: (laughs) (laughs) no no claire might have a more recent memory of pushing yeah i (laughs)
2: like um Let's see. I don't know. Um, I, w- you know, honestly, for me, I would say, because I actually had a very clear vision when I first started writing the book of, of the last chapter. Like I am, I, I wrote the last chapter freehand because I knew what was, I, I just could see it so vividly in my mind. I almost kind of worked backwards throughout, mm-hmm. like, you know, forward and backward. Um, and as Tanya knows, I had to restructure a lot You know, as the different um, as I as I rewrote the different drafts, I mean, how it started and how it ends is very different. Um, But so I would almost say I was most surprised by like the second book and and where it went and the direction it went and the direction of the characters and the growth of the characters as I've continued to learn more about them and get to know them more. Um, They've they've kept me they've kept me surprised throughout that process. So it kind of carries more into the second book as their evolution has become more and more clear to me.
3: Yeah, I can see that. Flynn's character arc in particular. Hmm. Is that- Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's a a surprise for me to read, which is
2: great. And I've loved writing it. That's been, I've loved writing the second book in a way Mm -hmm. um, that I actually didn't really feel with the first. Maybe it was because I was learning so much I was basically learning how to write a novel when I wrote the first. It was the first book that I started and finished. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second book has uh, just come alive in a different way.
1: Awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, this is gonna, this sounds just like the actual writing experience when we're immersed in writing. But um, the last five minutes, um, we've only been on for five minutes, but the clock says we're out of time. I know. How has that happen?
2: uh, Yeah, I know. Oh darn,
1: I have to read. so much um, to Claire Eisenthal, author of The Rising yes. Order, and, and Tanya Brooking, the author of Lovely Rita. And Tanya's going to take us out of this episode with mm-hmm. a couple of pages from Lovely Rita. Yep. All mm-hmm. yours, Tanya.
3: Okay. Look forward to it. So this uh, happens uh, when Rita and her mother have fled their home in the middle of the night. I just need to give a little context um, in order to escape Rita's stepfather. Even in the dark... The Mirage Motel seemed a place only the most desperate would stay. The adobe building had been painted the color of fatigues. It looked depressed as if it had survived a great war but left behind a vital limb. Rita's heart sank. We're staying here? You got a better idea? Mama killed the engine and stepped out. Be right back, but no whining. It's only temporary. She slammed the door. Rita plunked the locks down. Inside, Mama tapped a bell. A chubby bald man appeared in frayed robe, rubbing saggy eyes. He pushed a book across the desk, which Mama scribbled in before dropping some bills on his desk. She returned and sank back into the driver's seat, dangling, dangling a key from her finger. Lucky number seven, her fake cheer didn't reach her eyes. Lucky, Rita thought. Yucky, mucky, plucky, fuckery. Around back, they parked behind an ashen door. Here it is, number seven, Mama's tight smile faltered home sweet home. Hoisting her belongings from the hatch, Rita swallowed sharp nostalgia for their beloved bungalow with its lush willow tree. She forced a smile and said, this is good mama, like a do-over. See, I knew you'd be happy. We just needed a change of scenery. Mama slid the key into a jiggly knob and leaned into the door. It creaked open to a dank room that reeked of dirty mattresses and mold you could taste like a rotten tooth. Rita tapped a switch. An overhead light bulb sparked to life behind a cobwebby glass disc. A double bed, blanketed in a dusty, indistinct pattern, shared the room with a table and chair, a small TV, and a low bank of drawers. Her fragile hope withered. Mama yanked a bottle of wine and opened her from her purse. Well, this'll be different. Wishing her mother's demeanor invited a warm embrace. Rita laced her arms around her own ribs and squeezed. With the most confidence she could muster, she repeated mama's implied promise. It's only temporary.
0: <laughs> mm. Wow, that's really poetically descriptive. I mean, that's mm-hmm.
2: well done. Yeah. yeah. I,
3: really
0: like
2: I miss it. I miss reading you, those pages, Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get back to
0: that. <laughs> I, know. I know. I need help. I need so
3: much help. I know. <laughs>
1: well, thank you both so very much for joining us today. This has been wonderful. and um, And we look forward to seeing both of these mm-hmm. books on the bookshelves very soon.
2: Yep. Thanks again for having us. It was so much fun. Yes, yes. it was. Thanks for coming on. We yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, Love it. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Take care. Thanks.
2: Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye
1: for joining us at Front Page Pass, where we present everything from new titles to rocking interviews with best-selling authors and publishing experts, writing and editing tips, the latest on the bookshelves for readers, and live coverage of writers' festivals, conferences, and author signings. Our mission, to serve up the world in a thrilling, wonderful, and most adventurous new way.